have a Bible this evening, turn to the book of Mark, chapter number two, or three, chapter three. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that I'm going to have your full attention tonight after a big meal and getting it warmer and warmer in here. Before we know it, it's going to be so cozy. <laughs> so I'm just going to kind of preach to myself tonight. I appreciate your being here. It's nice to have you in fellowship and there, but I know that it's going to be shortly. I'll be waving out. You won't see me at all. But there is a message I want to share that, quite frankly, I need, and I believe some of you do as well, and it's, it's expressed in these verses beginning in Mark chapter number 3, verse 20, and I'll, I'll read a few of them here, then pray and share what the Lord's laid on my heart. Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark 3, beginning verse 20. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread, when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he calleth them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? I'm going to stop there and ask you a question. Are you a cheerleader, or are you a Grinch? Are you somebody that is seriously involved in, in encouraging others to take spiritual steps of growth? To, to grow in the Lord, and to step out in faith, trust in God. Are you a cheerleader behind them? Or are you kind of like the Grinch, somebody that comes along and gives all of the reasons why you can't do it? It's never been done that way before. Why should you expect to do it? I found in this passage three Grinches, if you will, trying their best to stop Jesus in his ministry. And, and these three groups may surprise you. So I want to pray and then ask God to meet with us tonight. What's holding you back from complete surrender to Christ? Is it a Grinch in your life? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, again, I thank you for the sweet time we've had. I thank you for friendships. I thank you for the ability to meet together like this and have a good time. And Lord, I, I so look forward to an eternity where the joy we experience is so unbelievable we can't even put it in words. So thank you for giving us a foretaste of that this evening. Now, Lord, would you lead us tonight? Give us what you'd have for us, and we'll thank you for it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice in verse number 21 in chapter 3, it says, And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. For they said, he's beside himself. The first group I want you to consider are your friends. Your friends. Are your friends being supportive in your spiritual walk? Are they encouraging you to take steps, growing closer to the Lord? Saying no to worldliness 
saying no to things that, that will not amount to anything for eternity in your life? Or are your friends trying to hold you back so they don't feel guilty in their own lives, so they don't feel any kind of push in their own life, they want to hold you back? These friends really had a justified concern. Their, their concern, I believe, was out of true compassion for Jesus. Jesus' zeal was definitely taxing his body. Jesus had been working around the clock, ministering to people, healing people. And then he spent all night long in prayer. You talk about taxing his physical body. And we all know that when you're tired, your emotions are affected by that. Your whole system becomes affected when you are depleted in energy. You've been thronged by hordes of needy people. No sleep choosing instead to pray, and couldn't even find time to eat, they said. So from their perspective, the friends, Jesus' claims and enthusiasm were merely evidences of an unbalanced state in which he was in. His friends were well aware of the watchful eye of the religious leaders, who were none too pleased about the direction Jesus was heading the people. His popularity not only heightened their suspicions, it stirred their envy. So they planned an intercession. Jesus' friends planned an intercession. They could not understand the popularity that Jesus was receiving. Along with the claims, the claims Jesus was making. I mean, he was one of them. And here he's talking about these incredible supernatural things. And such majestic topic. How could he have these thoughts? He's just like one of us, we thought. They were sure that he was having a mental crisis. So they arrived for a possible forcible intervention. If Jesus were not going to have the smarts to stop this, then we're going to stop it for him. I found it interesting that questioning a person's mental capacity was not new to Jesus, or Jesus might have started it, but in Acts chapter 26, verse 24, it says, And as he, Paul, thus spake for himself, Festus, the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. You're out of your mind. was his assessment. These friends may have their loyalty up for question. In Proverbs 19, 7, it says, All the brethren of the poor do hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursueth them with words, yet they are wanting to him. Jesus' friends did not understand who Jesus was. They did not understand what Jesus was trying to do. So they felt obliged to stop him from making a fool of himself. Their lack of faith in him led them to try and stop him from fulfilling the very purpose for which he came. So, first thought I had was, sometimes our spiritual decisions will lead us to have to part from some of our old friends. There's a time where we must make a separation. If our Old friends are holding us back, not understanding, more, more importantly, not supporting our desire to follow Christ. 
our desire to do what he tells us to do, and they're not supporting of that, perhaps it's time for us to find other friends. You say, but Pastor Outler, my friend goes to church all the time. My friend is a good and godly person. Huh. Makes it even harder, doesn't it? And so what we have to decide is who is going to be the one that's going to lead our life. Is it going to be our friends? Or is it going to be our God? You say, man. Secondly, in verse 22, And the scribes which came down from G Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub. And by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. There's a second grouping of people here. First one is the friends. Second group trying to stop Jesus from fulfilling his mission. And this group said, you are doing this because you have Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub literally meant dung god or manure god. Also called Lord of the Flies. These scribes were committing a vile sin by attributing the power of Christ to Satan. They were willing to believe anything but the truth. Their reasoning, or Jesus' reasoning, verse, 20, verse uh, 23 says, And he, Jesus, called unto them and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath no end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Jesus was teaching here that Satan must first be bound before his kingdom can be spoiled. He was declaring that in his power, in Jesus' power, he had bound the devil, the strong man, thus making all the demons subservient to his command. Second group was their old religion. Their old religion, you see, Jesus was a Jew. And it was the religious leaders of Judaism that were attacking Jesus. You have Beelzebub. The powers that you're doing are the powers of Satan himself. Jesus gave a very stern warning in verse 28. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. In other words, because... They accused Jesus of performing these miracles in the power of Satan. Jesus said, you are flirting with the unpardonable sin. Now, let's not forget to whom Jesus is speaking. He's talking to the religious leaders, the scribes, those that led the religion, the very religion from which he came. He's saying, you are flirting with the unpardonable sin. 
It is the Holy Spirit that works in our hearts and convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit is what works in our hearts and draws us to Christ. By rejecting His conviction and ultimately rejecting Christ, men are choosing to accept instead the judgment of a Christless eternity in hell. There is, therefore, no forgiveness for such blasphemy. In Luke 12, 10, And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. We see in this story the servant's compassion. Because Jesus' old religion had turned against him and had begun questioning him and his motives, even threatening him with violence, Jesus now understands when some of us have to leave our old religion in order to join one more closely aligned with His Word. Many, many years ago when I was growing up, my dad pastored a, a, a liberal church, the church that believed in works salvation. They went to a, a, a camp received the assurance of their salvation, mom and dad, and they came back and they shared the plan of salvation with us, their family. I remember putting my faith and trust in Jesus based upon their testimony. And I also remember, even as a young child, my dad preaching messages, messages that used to be you need to earn your way to heaven and it's your sincerity that matters from that kind of a message to you must be born again. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. And in that liberal church, he was preaching salvation. I was in the basement of that church one time, and I remember two or three men, I don't remember, walking down the basement hall toward me. And they had black suits on with black vests, white shirts, and black ties. Oh, they were a formidable-looking trio. Where's your dad, they asked. I pointed them in the right direction. Of course, I was too young to know what was going on, but shortly thereafter, we were moving because my dad got kicked out of the denomination because they were not going to allow him to preach that kind of heresy in that denomination. You see, sometimes we have to part ways with our old religion. There are some churches around that people could not be sweeter, could not be more loving. But if that church is not preaching the truths of the gospel, then there must be a parting from that church. Sometimes we learn that the spiritual truths we've learned for ourselves from God's Word are incompatible with our old church. That time it may be wise to make a clean cut. Number three. In verse 31, There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. Now there's so much in this story we're not told. We're not giving all the details here, but Jesus is apparently teaching, and he's surrounded by a group of people listening to him teach. Perhaps he's doing some, some healing. 
And, and Jesus' mother and, and, and the rest of his family, the rest of his brothers, show up on the outskirts of this crowd. And they say, where is Jesus? The reason they ask is they couldn't see because of the crowd. And word starts going through the crowd, hey, your, your family is out there. Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are out there. Now, honestly, and you know the story, but honestly, it sounds at face value like Jesus is being a little disrespectful here. But we have to understand one thing. Jesus was not disrespectful. Jesus was pure and righteous and holy. He was not disrespectful. <laughs> How humiliating. His mom showed up. To call him home. <laughs> Jesus, your mommy's here. <laughs> your mommy. Your mommy's here. Perhaps there was some ridicule there. I don't know. But they, like his friends, may have thought that he had gone too far in drawing such attention to himself. His own family. They did not understand. They could not, in their minds, understand what Jesus was doing. In John 7, 3 and following, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Now that last statement is the key. His brother showed up. His brother showed up. And they said in this passage, Jesus, what you need to do is go out in the countryside and everywhere there's people and do all these tricks. Do these miracles to prove who you are. Because they didn't believe him. The half-brothers of Jesus apparently tried setting him up for failure. Not believing that he was who he claimed to be, they tried to get him to put his miracles on display. They believed such an attempt would end in embarrassment and failure, thus curing this wild man of his hysteria. But what did Jesus do? Interestingly, in Psalm 27, verse 10, it says, when my, father, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. In Matthew 19, 29, And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. Now, on the one hand, we read these, and we understand that Jesus said, it gives us concept, what you need to do is you need to hate your family if you're going to be my disciple. You need to hate your family so you can appropriately love me. And, of course, in our Western culture, we think, well, that's horrible. You hate? Really, he didn't mean to hate, did he? Well, the, the answer to that is you understand the culture and the language. The, the, there was a, a comparison he was using. In other words... The feelings you have for me and the love you have for me should be so great in comparison. That love you have for your family appears like hate. 
Love me with your whole heart, soul, mind, spirit, all of you. I want you to love me with everything that's in you. And as you love your family, which you should do, the love comparison will appear as hate. So we read these, 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 these passages telling us about the disparity between a love for Christ and a love for family. And we read them and they kind of... We have Christmas together. And, oh, isn't it wonderful having family together? Thanksgiving, that's great. Birthdays, we get together and celebrate birthdays. Isn't it great? And family, great. I think it's just wonderful. And I do. I think it's wonderful. But somewhere along the line, we have elevated family way above Christ. Let's see. I'd never do that. I, I'd never put family above Christ. I would never do that. I would never have family more important to Christ. I wonder how many of us choose not to come to church because of a family dinner. Yeah, but Pastor Eller, it's their birthday. God sometimes bypasses other family members to speak to one individual. Did you know that? Did you know sometimes God speaks to an individual, not the whole family? It's important that the one God calls responds completely and unreservedly. Think of Joseph as a young man. God gave to Joseph as a young man an amazing dream. Now, now Joseph went out and started broadcasting that dream, and nobody understood it. In fact, his brothers hated him so badly, for they wanted to kill him. So he probably shouldn't have been spreading that. That was between him and God. But it was a truth, nevertheless. Think young David. <clears throat> Jesse, Samuel said, bring out your sons. Because God wants me to anoint one of your sons to be the next king to replace Saul. Oh, wow, that's incredible, Jesse said. Well, one of my sons? Eldest son, you come out of the, out of the, out of the woods here. Come on, I, wanna, I want you to come by because that's got to be you. No, he's not the one. Okay, second in line. Come on through. No. Next in line. No. Next in line. No. All of the sons come by Samuel, and not one of them is God's choice. Jesse's standing there, scratching his head. Hmm, I don't understand. And Samuel says, are these all of your sons? It is almost like Jesse said, oh, yeah, there's little Davy, but surely not David. Oh, go ahead and call him. David shows up. Of course, he's the one that God chose. He's the one. Did his brothers understand? Did Jesse understand? But it was between God and David. When the family's desires conflict with God's desires, God's must take precedence. So sometimes family needs to take a back seat to your faithfulness and service for Christ.
in the late 1700s on into the early 1800s, William Carey served the Lord pastoring several churches and teaching in seminaries. Along the line, he became convinced that missionary work was to be the central responsibility of the church. He would take with him the belief that foreign fields would best be won by nationals, which became his passion. And this was a man way ahead of his time. He was impressed that God wanted him to go to the field of India. Carey is the one known for the statement, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Carey's decision to go overseas in mission work was opposed by his church. His decision to go overseas was opposed by his father. He judged him mad for considering it. Carey's decision to go overseas was opposed by his own wife, Dorothy. The timing couldn't have been worse. They had three little children, and another was due any time. She delivered that last baby just three weeks before they departed. It wasn't like hopping on a plane like we have today. The trip would be a hazardous five-month voyage, complicated by France's very recent declaration of war against England. But God saw them safely to their destination. On the field, their five-year-old son Peter died. That death pushed Dorothy into a mental illness. She suffered from delusions, convincing her that her husband was being unfaithful to her in marriage. William Carey would go through the streets of India, trying to evangelize the lost, followed by his wife, who was loudly declaring that he had been unfaithful. It'd be seven long years before Carey baptized his first convert. During that dreadful time, he wrote these words, This is indeed the valley of the shadow of death to me. Oh, what a load is a barren heart. Oh, that this day could be consigned to oblivion. Much to complain of. Such another dead soul, I think, scarcely exists in the world. Mine is a lonely life indeed. My soul is overwhelmed with depression. One of Carey's greatest achievements was the founding of Serampore College in 1819 for the training of indigenous church planters and evangelists. This school opened with 37 Indian students. He eventually translated the whole Bible into Bengali, Sanskrit, and Marathi, and helped in other Bible translations. He translated the New Testament in many more languages and dialects. He died in 1834, leaving a legacy of mission work. For others to follow. Carey's inspiration was from his daring example of selfless abandoned to the service of the Lord. His legacy was one of selling out wholeheartedly to call of Christ. Nothing or no one would stand between him and fulfilling that call. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 25 and 26 it reads, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come unto me, and hate not his father and mother, 
and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now I'm going to stand here and tell you that I would have counseled William Carey in that decision. <laughs> Going against the counsel of your father, against your wife? I don't think so. But God didn't ask me. That was between William Carey and God. So just two thoughts and I'm done. Number one. Are you sold out to whatever God wants you to do? Regardless of other groups who may love you but may not understand, are you sold out? If God speaks to you, are you willing to listen unreservedly? And number two, are you going to be supportive? when God speaks to somebody else but doesn't speak to you? And it seems like it doesn't make any sense. The call they're describing seems too big, perhaps too dangerous, but they're convinced it was a calling of God. Will you be a cheerleader or will you be a Grinch? When I was growing up, many years ago now, our country was known as the country sending out missionaries around the world. Most churches had young people dedicating their lives to full-time Christian service. Early on in the Christian school movement, there were numbers of young people saying, yes, I'll go wherever God calls. And the mission ranks were full. Sadly, that day is past. Our country is not the number one missionary-sending country any longer. Nor is it number two, nor is it number three. What's changed? Is it possible is it possible that the luxury we've enjoyed in this country has made us so soft we are no longer willing to give our loved ones to God? So I preached the message to myself. If you happen to stay awake, then you take what God has for you. And let's just decide that if God speaks, let's support him in it. And if God speaks to us, let's obey. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, forgive us for the times that we have squelched the voice of your Holy Spirit, giving us clear direction, and yet, Lord, we didn't want to do it, so we found ways to excuse our way away. Also, Lord, would you forgive us for those times we were not supportive with others to whom you were speaking. Lord, I'm 
convinced that from our own midst, our church, I believe there are those that you long to touch and call. Oh, perhaps not at a full-time Christian work, but into your work nonetheless. Help us to be supportive and help us above all things to be willing to be completely obedient to your call. Lord, I thank you for this sweet time we've had exploring your word. I pray, Spirit of God, that you will convict us of areas in which we are not obeying it. And I pray that you will strengthen us to be obedient. And I thank you, Lord, for the sweet time we've had tonight. It's been so encouraging. I thank you for the fellowship we've had. And Lord, I pray as we go into this week, and indeed into this Christmas season that gets pretty hectic, I pray that we will keep you first and foremost in our hearts and minds. And we'll thank you for it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.